This week on Cross Defense, it's Pastor Story Hour. We're cracking open CBS's church history and reading a story about John the Evangelist. We're going to equip our minds in preparation for persecution and cast off terms like post-Christian, post-church, post-Constantinian, maybe you've heard these terms, as we're reminded that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ church. All this and more coming up right now. It's time to equip your mind, excite your imagination, and comfort your soul. You're listening to Cross Defense. It's a pleasure to serve you today. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California, where we are learning to rejoice. (laughs) We're learning to rejoice in our suffering as the spiritual forces of darkness are using our neighbors to ridicule me and to ridicule the congregation for warning the community about the dangers of an all-ages drag show. And I mean it, we're trusting Jesus, that we are truly blessed in being reviled. That as we are hated, it's because we're hated for Jesus' sake. And that is a blessing. As he said in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are rejoicing. I want to take a moment to invite you to rejoice with us as we kick off the show today. See, since we last spoke last week in the last episode, our LGBTQ opponents have used artificial intelligence art to make yours truly... Pastor Bramwell, into a drag queen. It's a hideous sight. I wouldn't want you to have to ever see it, but uh, that's a little bit of a contradiction in terms because I, I'm printing the image for you to be able to see it all you want if you if that's what, if that's the way you, you flow. <laughs> okay. So they did this without my permission. They used my likeness in their marketing materials for a fundraiser for their next Pride a parade, protest, whatever they're calling it here in Ferndale back in June, coming up in June. To do this, they violated California Civil Code 3344A. But like St. Paul taught us, my disfigurement is nothing to get upset about. My persecution, injury to reputation, to body, any of it, in fact, it is an opportunity for the Lord to use for good, what men intended for evil. Genesis 50, 20, right? And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't want this to be this whole show to be about that. So if you want to learn more about it, go to TyrellBramwell.com. That's right, my, my personal website. I've It's been sitting stagnant for over a couple years now, but you can go to TyrellBramwell.com and it's been refreshed there as a landing page so you can learn all about how you can rejoice with the, the members of St. Mark Lutheran Church with me, in our reviling and in the blessing that we receive, the great reward in heaven that is uh, prepared for us uh, because of it, I guess. All right. So, yeah, it's so good to be a Christian. I love it because, you know, what can hurt us? What in the world can hurt us? Okay. So, in uh, our last episode, 
We spoke about public displays of Christianity. All of this was related. We relayed a summary of all the stuff going on here in Ferndale because of that. Um, And considered why we don't see more public displays of Christianity. It could be because when Christians speak out, their images are turned into, uh, you know, drag queens. I, I don't know. Maybe that's keeping some people from speaking up, or just the thought of not being liked by their neighbors is probably has something to do with it. We looked at Matthew 5, and we talked about letting the light of Christ shine in the world instead of hiding it under that super complicated, sophisticated device called a basket. Remember? Take a look at that episode, listen to that episode, excuse me, if you haven't listened already. We, we touched on the church's numerical decline, And we related it in part to what you might call our milk toast witness before the world, that we've gone soft and we've become unwilling to truly suffer for the sake of Christ here in the Western church. And we have to be honest, don't we? We have to be honest about these things. We're Lutherans and so we shouldn't be uh, you know, afraid to do that. We don't have a hard time doing that. We do that very well, actually. We call a thing what it is. Historically, we're good at confronting the reality before us honestly, even when it's ugly. We don't have a problem calling ourselves sinners and meaning it. We don't have a problem calling ourselves poor, miserable sinners and meaning it. We can call a thing what it is. We come together for the divine service every week, and what is the first thing we do after invoking the name of God? We get real about our sins and confess them before our God, to our God, pleading for him to forgive us, resting in our baptismal promise, in the means of grace. We call a spade a spade, and we are all the better for it. Praise be to God, he has given us this wonderful gift. We can discern the problems we face. We can own our errors and not just sit and continue to poke ourselves in the eye, but move forward as the absolved church of Christ that we are. And that's what I want to bring to your ears today. I've decided to do it through a story hour. (laughs) Those are all the rage right now, right? Have you heard about this? In response to drag... Drag Queen Story Hours. Are you catching the theme for the show? (laughs) In response to Drag Queen Story Hours, pastors are now doing library story hours as well. And they're, they're actually being protested and canceled and all that stuff. The whole thing is going on because this is part of today's spiritual battle, isn't it? We have to be mindful of what the battle is during the time we live so that we're not professing to be Christians, but not actually engaging the world around us where the battle is, because that doesn't do any good. We got to actually engage. We got to actually be the Christians we are in the time in which God has given us to live. So I believe this story, this story will equip your minds as we move further into this era of, of persecution that we're in. It's a story about St. John the Evangelist, and it's to show you an example of what it looks like to face danger as a Christian, the love that spurs this on, what it looks like to not be soft in the face 
of danger. And even if you're old, this is a story about St. John after he returns from the Isle of Patmos. In his elderly years, as he's living out his days in Ephesus, that you, even if you're old, you can think of your time here, what you have remaining, as time to fight with the love of Christ for your neighbor. If you have breath in your lungs, you have the spiritual armor of God upon you and are able, even in your aging years, or on the other end of the spectrum, no matter how young you are, you are able to love your neighbor, even if it means putting yourself in harm's way, even if it means dying in service to those who have set themselves against you. And most of us in the church today, in the Western church, in the American church, most of us are not accustomed to suffering for Christ's sake the way the early church did and many Christians in other parts of the world still do, like physically putting our life on the line. I received a message from a brother pastor this week after he listened to the summary that I gave in the previous episode about the ongoing situation here in Ferndale. And he asked me an honest and curious question. He asked if my congregation was supporting me. And I answered, yes, they're very supportive. But I didn't go into detail. And I want to take a moment to, to address the message. Because it's not without learning. See, the older members of, of our churches here in Ferndale, wherever you're at, the older members have lived through a time of peace their entire lives. They're going to need to learn how to weather these storms. They've lived through peace. They've not experienced suffering and persecution. Many Christians aren't used to the blowback that comes when their pastor speaks the truth and popular opinion turns on them. They're not used to that. They're not ready for that. So there's a need for teaching. We always have to be teaching. And we always have to be willing to learn as well. Because there's going to be confusion in what it means to suffer and what it means to speak boldly in the midst of that suffering. Being strong in the Word of God can be interpreted as taunting. Taunting those who hate us just because we're being strong. Confidence in the truth of God's Word and our duty to proclaim it, especially for pastors, can be interpreted as cockiness or, or hubris, arrogance, when really it's nothing more than unwavering certainty, standing, resolved, in the midst of, of the fray, unflinching, in the midst of the battle. In the other days of persecution, I suspect, we're going to experience that the persecuted person or church is attacked from without, of course, but also from within. This, too, may be another part of the decline we see in the Western church. We talked a little bit about the decline last time and how it comes from, from not seeing that we really are facing death all the time and not, seeing, not standing strong and, and proclaiming our baptismal identity in the face of that. Not every warm body that sits in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning is a member of the invisible church. And when public scrutiny comes 
to us, to our doorstep, for holding fast to the word of God, people will leave. And it appears as if our numbers are declining. When in reality, we're simply seeing the visible church become a more accurate representation of the invisible church. The two are coming into sync more closely. Times of of hardship have a way of of clarifying these things as the the chaff is cut away. Have you you heard the term post-Constantinian? The other way, the other other term, the other way it's mentioned is post-Christian. Now, these are terms used to describe our current social epoch, right? That we're in a a post-Constantinian or post-Christian era, age. Now, if I have to choose one or the other, I always prefer to to go with the former rather than the latter. Post-Constantinian is is closer to being accurate than post-Christian because I believe what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 13 to 19. I believe what Jesus says in all of Scripture. <laughs> but in this context, Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. People use the phrase post-Christian, post-Constantinian, to label our current social climate. The statisticians tell us that church attendance is on the decline and that there's a rise of a new demographic of people referred to by the pollsters as nuns. These are people with no religious affiliation. Now, we're not talking about the uh, Roman Catholic ladies you know, walking around in the nunnery. We're talking about nuns with no nun religion, religious affiliation. They mark none when they are surveyed about their religion their denomination. I say, don't pay any attention to these pollsters, my friends. Don't give them any time of day. To quote Neil Postman, it's possible to say almost anything without contradiction, provided you begin your utterance, your words, with, a study has shown, or, and this one's very popular today, scientists now tell us, You can say almost anything if you start your sentences that way. Because stats and polls, raw data, they can be twisted and manipulated. 
Postman says it's it's information without context or or rather information without control mechanisms. And he points out that religion and politics are two of the most adequate control mechanisms that we've ever had. And so Postman says polls and statistics are they're just inert data. And all of it is information that has become garbage that is not only incapable of answering the most fundamental human questions, but barely useful in providing coherent direction to the solution of even mundane problems. And I quote, this is from Technopoly, if you've read this work from Neil Postman, we proceed under the assumption that information is our friend, believing that cultures may suffer grievous, grievously for a lack of information, which, of course, they do, it is only now beginning to be understood that cultures may also suffer grievously from information glut, information without meaning, information without control mechanisms. Post-Christian as a term is the result of information without a control mechanism. And then when we consider it in light of Matthew 16, 18, we understand that it's dead on arrival. So throw away this idea that the church is declining. Throw away this idea that you're alone. Throw away this idea that we need to do something to be more appeasing to the culture we live in. And let's get strong. Let's be bold. Let's be like St. John the Evangelist in the story I'm about to tell you. But before I do, let's take a break. We'll be right back for more Cross Defense. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. So why talk about post-Constantinian or post-Christian at all? Why do I bring this up in, in relation to the stuff going on here at St. Mark's, our public displays of, of piety from the last episode, uh, from our willingness to be persecuted and suffer? What's the deal? The deal is we can become captive to the terms we use to describe things. We can begin to believe them, even when they're meant to be sort of inert, uh, descriptive only categories and ways we classify things. And these can start to shape our thinking even when we know better. And eventually we don't know better. And so when we start talking about a post-Christian church, we start to let our minds, our, our imaginations go down a road where we believe we actually are post-Christian. And that is directly contradictory to the idea that the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. There is no such thing as post-Christian. I believe you might know a hymn, if you're familiar with the Lutheran service book, hymn 645. You might recognize that we confess this, we understand this, and I want to help us get away from terms like post-Constantinian and post-Christian. Nikolai Frederick Severin Grundtvig, <laughs> from 1783 to 1872, he wrote 
these words to him 645 built on the rock built on the rock the church shall stand even when steeples are falling crumbled have spires in every land bells still are chiming and calling calling the young and old to rest but above all the souls distressed longing for rest everlasting there will never be dear saints a post-christian era i don't believe post-constantinian is accurate either because it's striving to label that same decline that is a decline in the visible church but when the reality is it is the invisible church that is the actual church but post-constantinian does get a little closer to the mark the context is that Christianity became the prevailing persuasive force on society at the time of Constantine, the emperor. And now we're living in a time when it's no longer, Christianity is no longer the predominant influence. But this too, as I've already said, this is an anemic term because it disregards the truth that the world's perception of the church is not the same as the reality of the church. And I mention this because so much of what we're going to be going through in these days as we continue into these weird and bizarro situations where people are literally protesting pastors reading books at libraries, but they're fighting for drag queens reading them, which baffles our minds, we need to understand that the world sees us as relics of an era now done. That is the reality in the Western church. They see that our time has come and gone, and now we are progressing into a different era. And the church has no place in it from their perspective. We need to understand that's their view. But all of this is to say the church's strength, our strength, my friends, cannot be measured by the civil realm's acknowledgement of our existence. The sooner we learn that, the better. Back to Built on the Rock. Here stands the font before our eyes, telling how God has received us. The altar recalls Christ's sacrifice and what his supper here gives us. Here sound the scriptures that proclaim Christ yesterday, today the same and evermore, our Redeemer. Yesterday, today, and evermore, there is no post-Christian church. And so now, with all of that said, <laughs> let's get to our story. I've promised you a story. I want to tell you a story that will encourage you, I hope equip, equip your mind and strengthen your imagination to see yourself as one who's, who's willing and able, one who can muster up the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit within you to love your neighbor, even if you think you're all alone, even if you think public opinion is against you, even if you think you will be hated and ostracized and, Lord forbid, you die, you can still muster up the strength to love your neighbor even when that neighbor is your enemy. Not because you consider them your enemy, but because they consider you their enemy.
It's an ancient story about John the Evangelist, as I've said. It's a story preserved for us by Eusebius of Caesarea. He lived from 260 to 339 AD, the, uh, the father of Christian history. He's often referred to as. Paul Meyer explains in his introduction of his trans- translation of Eusebius that the ten books of Eusebius's church history are a treasure trove, Paul Meyer says, a treasure trove of data on the fledgling faith, whose survival and purity were sorely tested by persecution without and from with heresy within. Still quoting Meyer, who based on this quote, may or may not appreciate Postman's disdain for raw data, we read, Today, Christianity is the most successful single phenomenon statistically considered in all of history. During its early years, however, it was fragile, fragmented, harried, tortured, and seemingly doomed by a hostile Roman Empire. Equally destructive were the internal attacks by renegade religionists who tried to seduce the saints through arcane distortions of doctrine or corral them into schismatic groups that foreshadowed contemporary cults. Mm, Well said. And all of this is not post-Constantinian, but pre-Constantinian. Why? Because... Christ is the same yesterday, today, and he will be the same tomorrow. So this extra-biblical account of St. John reveals the faith of the apostle in action during the early days of the church. My prayer is that this will excite your imagination, dear saint, enough to see through the academic, sociological mumbo-jumbo of the pollsters and statisticians and talking heads that's only propagated by our information gluttony, as Postman describes it. I pray it will equip your minds to know better than to see our day and age as post-Christian because there is no such thing. And I pray that you will be comforted by the love of Christ put on display by the Lord's called and sent apostolic messenger in this story, St. John. I, I, also, I also hope you will see the audacity, the brazen audacity of the apostle, his courage, his courage to even go against the church there present where this story takes place, the congregation, to break from their normal behavior and do what is considered to be audacious and reckless. His unflinching resolve and selflessness in the face of danger is put on display, and I pray it will build you up, dear saint. I also hope you will see the sin of the churchman mentioned in the story who failed to carry out his task. Consider yourself in his shoes. I want you to see yourself in his shoes with respect to your own Christian vocation, and then upon repentance... Understand that you are also the one returned to the church. You are the young man in this story as well. You are a trophy of the resurrection. So, Eusebius' story is delivered in this way, and we begin with some details. After Domitian had ruled 15 years, Nerva succeeded him, 
And this is A.D. 96, Meyer tells us in his translation. By decree of the Roman Senate, the honors of Domitian were annulled, and those banished unjustly returned and had their property restored to them. At this time also, early Christian tradition relates the Apostle John, after his island exile, resumed residence at Ephesus. That's a reference to the Revelation, right? The book of Revelation, as John was exiled to Patmos. After Nerva had reigned a little over a year, he was succeeded by Trajan. Now we're into AD 98. In his first year, Abelius, after leading the church at Alexandria for 13 years, was succeeded by Cerdo, the third in charge there, after the first, Ananias. At this time, Clement was still head of the Roman church, similarly the third in the list of bishops in Rome who followed Paul and Peter. Linus, the first, and Aniclitus, the second. At Antioch, we're getting a, we're kind of getting a description of all the different bishops in the different uh, church centers throughout this region, right? At Antioch, where Evodius had been the first bishop, Ignatius was becoming famous at this time as the second. Similarly, Simeon was second after the brother of our Savior to have charge of the church in Jerusalem after James, right? Okay, so friends, real, real quick, why, why does any of this matter, these details? I, I know you're waiting to hear the story and we're building toward it. You're going to get that in the last segment, as you probably already expect. But what is all this stuff about the so-and-so's reign, and, and what's-his-name's reign, and, and who was in charge of the church here and there. What is it all about? Historical verifiability. Eusebius is a historian, just like St. Luke. And just like St. Luke, he's providing time-stamp details so we can locate this in human history. And he's not afraid to get down to the specifics He's not afraid because it's true. When you're recounting true history, you can be specific, as St. Luke is in his gospel, putting down minutiae, putting down very detailed facts for us to be able to cross-reference and corroborate. And if any of them fall apart, we have reason to doubt the gospel. But they don't. They stand true. The dike does not crumble. There is no hole to fill with our finger. The levy remains because it's true. Ours, Christianity, ours is not an ahistorical religion. Christianity is true. It comes down to us through real human history. So that's why we include these kind of details that can be kind of boring to some and you want to overlook them, but they are important to put the story you're going to hear into real human history. So, onward to our story. We may actually get to it in this segment. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? So, at this time, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we're in Eusebius, and that would be John, apostle and evangelist, still lived in Asia Minor, and he directed the churches there following his return from exile. That he survived this long is confirmed by two reliable and orthodox witnesses, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria. 
In book two of his Against Heresies, Irenaeus writes, All elders in Asia associated with John, the Lord's disciple, testify that John taught them the truth, for he remained with them until the time of Trajan. He says the same in book three. Now the church at Ephesus was founded by Paul, but John remained there until Trajan's time, and it is a true witness of the apostolic tradition. In his treatise, The Rich Man Who Is Saved, Clement adds this edifying narrative. Okay, so here is the beginning of the story. Listen to a story that is not a story, but a true account of John the Apostle preserved in memory. After the tyrant's death, he returned from the island of Patmos to Ephesus and used to go, when asked, to the neighboring Gentile districts to appoint bishops, reconcile churches, and ordain someone designated by the Spirit. Arriving at a nearby city, Smyrna, he settled disputes among the brethren, and then, noticing a spirited youth of superior physique and handsome appearance, he commended him to the appointed bishop with the words, I leave this young man in your keeping with Christ as my witness. Okay, so you might find it fitting, friends, that Smyrna is one of the churches that our Lord directed John, the same John, the disciple whom our our Lord loved, to write to in Revelation chapter 2. In the letter they received, they were told, Be faithful unto death, and I, that is Jesus, will give you the crown of life. That's Revelation 2.10. Maybe you find that interesting as we're reading this story, because we're in the same city. When John returned to Ephesus, we read... The churchmen brought home the youth that was entrusted to his care, raised him, and finally baptized him. After this, he relaxed his oversight, having put the seal of the Lord on him as the perfect safeguard. But some idle and dissolute youths corrupted him with lavish entertainment and then took him with them when they went out at night to commit robbery or worse crimes. Soon he joined them, and like a stallion taking the bit in mouth, he dashed off the straight road and down the precipice. Renouncing God's salvation, he went from petty offenses to major crimes and formed the young renegades into a gang of bandits with himself as chief, surpassing them in all violence and bloody cruelty. Time passed. And John paid another visit. When he had finished his mission, John said, Come now, Bishop, return the deposit that Christ and I left in your keeping with the church's witness. At first, the bishop was dumbfounded, thinking that he was being dunned for funds that he had never received. But John said, I am asking for the young man and his soul. He is dead groaned the old man in tears. How did he die? John asks. He is dead to God. He turned out vile and debauched, an outlaw. Now he is in the mountains, not the church, with an armed gang of men like himself. Okay, so are you following the story, my friends? 
What details have you picked up? Think about that for a second. We're going to take a break real quick. When we get back, we'll get into the story and we'll round out the show. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Martin Luther wrote in his small catechism, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. He reminded the church then and today to learn by heart the basics of the Word of God and the Gospel. I'm Pastor Brady Finner, host of Concord Matters. Beginning September 24th, join me as we get back to the basics with the six chief parts. Grab your catechism and be ready for a simple, theologically rich study with lots of Jesus. Saturday mornings at 10 on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. What details did you pick up from what we've read of the story so far? Is it exciting your imagination to think about John in this way? Elderly John, after the book of Revelation, how he lived as an apostle, uh, an elderly uh, statesman in the church, ordaining other pastors, bringing them on board as he's going around and reconciling churches and being this peacekeeper and uh, fixing problems, sort of keeping Christ's church in, in its right way in these early years. It's exciting stuff, if you ask me. Very exciting. Well, some of the details we have here, right? The apostle left the young man with the appointed churchman, the bishop of Smyrna. That is the pastor. If you're not used to this language of bishop, bishop, the pastor. His, his charge is a young man. And so he, the young man learned the way of Christ as he was being raised by the bishop and then having been taught the way, having, having learned the truth, being catechized, instructed in Scripture, then he's baptized. That's how we do it with those who are older, right? If they're able to be taught, we teach them first. If they're, if they're infants, newborns, we baptize first, teach later. Teach along the way. Never ever, in either regard, never ever considering baptism to be this sort of seal that you, that you put down there and then you like relax your oversight, as the story says. We're like, oh, well, I baptized my baby and I'm done. Wipe your hands, walk away. No, no. You baptize your baby and you raise your baby in the truth. The baby is born into the family of God and then the baby is fed and nourished and sustained in the family of God by bringing that baby to church where that baby is raised up hearing God's word, feasting on God's word with its ears and its heart until such a time that it feasts, feasts on God's word in body and blood in and with the bread and wine. We never baptize and leave the kid out to die. Baptize the adult. Nope, you're done. Instruction, catechesis, is ongoing. Our entire lives. How many times do I hear as pastor, and I know your pastor has heard the same thing. If you are a pastor listening, I know you, you sir, have heard the same thing. That, oh, well, I, I remember learning that in Sunday school. So many people drift away from the church, and when, when they, they think about their faith, they think, well, I went to Sunday school, I'm good to go. I know the basics. No, well, Sunday school is not the basics. Catechism provides the fundamentals, but confirmation class, the end of, of catechism, that, that's not graduation. That's your entrance into the church. And in this story, the churchman, the bishop, he's treating baptism, which is going to parallel with confirmation because the age of the young man, he's treating that as graduation from the church, and that's exactly how the young man treats it. 
relax oversight, and the young man goes off on his summer break, and he never comes back. Yeah, that's the reality. He was corrupted after he was baptized. How did this happen? Clement says it was due to the bishop relaxing his oversight. So don't do that, guys. Let's not do that. Pastors, lay people, all Christians, stay diligent. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? We're to exercise our oversight diligently. All the pastoral epistles that Paul writes, they focus on this, don't they? It's a lesson for parents and all Christians, as well as for churchmen, bishops, pastors. Guard the deposit entrusted to you, Paul says. 2 Timothy 1.14. The language of deposit, I love that language, because it gets to where we're always thinking, right? Money, funds, finances. The language of deposit. John calls the young man the deposit that Christ and I left in your keeping. That's an interesting detail as well, that Christ and I left in your keeping. There's ownership involved here both for the pastor, who the young man was left with, but also for John, right? He includes himself there. He doesn't just say that Christ left with you, and that is the reality. Christ did working through John. God's wearing the mask of John. He did leave the young man with that bishop, but John doesn't use that as a cop-out and say, well, you know, that's what it's all on, on God. It's Christ's will. Now, he says, I have a stake in this. I am a co-partner in the gospel. Christ and I left this young man with you. Where is he? Because I care. Because I love. Because I have been made a Christian. And so the love of Christ flows through me. And I am concerned about this man's soul. This ownership comes to life in the next part of the story. You ready? Let's go. The apostle tore his clothing, beat his head, and groaned, a fine guardian I left our brother's soul. Ooh, a fine guardian I left for our brother's soul. Do you hear the consternation? John is gravely disappointed in the pastor of Smyrna. He didn't care for the soul left in his care. This is serious business. Far more important than overseeing the reception of funds. Pastors receive souls to look after. Is there anything a faithful pastor won't do to guard the souls entrusted to his care? The apostle tore his clothing, beat his head, and groaned, A fine guardian I left for our brother's soul. But get me a horse, he said, <laughs> and show, someone show me the way. John rode off from the church just as he was, clothing torn, head beaten, groaning. He shouted, let's see, well, no, here we go. When he arrived at the hideout, he rides off and he rides to the hideout and he was seized by the outlaws, the centuries of the outlaw, and he shouted, this is what I have come for. Take me to your leader. When John approached and the young leader recognized him, he turned and fled in shame. That's an interesting detail too, isn't it? Don't think that those in your life who are lost, who have drifted away from the truth, don't think that they don't know better. We're bringing it kind of home 
to the context of what we're going through here at St. Mark, why are people so upset about putting on the sign, beware drag show coming to the old steeple? Well, because the owners of the old steeple were upset because there's shame involved. People know what they're doing is wrong. Even if they've built up a really thick outer skin to convince the world and then themselves that they don't think it's wrong, they do. And so this young man turned and fled in shame because he recognized John. But John ran ran after him as hard as he could, forgetting his age and calling out, why are you running away from me, child? From your own father, unarmed and old. (laughs) See, he displays his vulnerability. He displays his weakness. He's surrounded by bandits, robbers, armed guards. Pity me, child. Don't fear me. Pity me. I will give account to Christ for you. And if necessary, gladly suffer death and give my life for yours as the Lord suffered death for us. So stop. Believe Christ sent me. That is important. The pastor will give an account to Christ for the souls in his care. And so he says, if necessary, I will gladly suffer death and give my life for yours. In another little project I do here locally called Canceled Christian Comments, recently talking about this whole drag show thing, I mentioned, after expressing a bunch of threats that I've received to anyone watching, that I I would rather give up my eternal salvation in Christ Jesus for the sake of my neighbor then not speak up against evil. It's a Romans 9, 1-3 thing, where Paul talks about he would, he would be cut off from, from the tree of life. He'd be cut off from God's people if it meant his, his kin, the Jews, would be saved. That idea. This is how seriously pastors take these things. We don't go into any of this half-hearted. At least not pastors worth their salt. I will give account to Christ for you. And if necessary, gladly suffer death and give my life for yours as the Lord suffered death for us. And this goes for Christians too. In all of our vocations, we want to be found faithful. We want to give an account to the Lord that displays our faithfulness. Now, will you sin and will you fall and falter? Yes, absolutely. But you will repent and seek to do what is right by the gospel, by the power of the gospel, I say. This is the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of a Christian, of a man called to stand in the stead of Christ. What is he willing to do? Die in the place of his people, as Christ died for all of us on the cross. The young man stopped, stared at the ground, threw down his weapons, and wept bitterly, flinging his arms around the old man, John, he begged forgiveness, baptized a second time with his own tears, but keeping his right hand hidden. What a story, right? The elderly apostle, braving seizure by violent criminals to save his child in the faith. A couple more notes here on the details. One, which I hope is obvious to everyone, this second baptism is not a literal second baptism. This is to say that 
The man cried so much. There was so much water. The man, man's tears washed away his sin as he, as he had a change of heart, as he was repentant, contrite. His contrition was cleansing. We might say he returned to the grace of his baptism. Meyer supplies an explanation about this whole uh, hidden right hand bit. Meyer says in a footnote, this conveys a state of unworthiness of forgiveness for all the bloodshed that he had caused with his right hand. Makes sense. The right hand of power. He had used his right hand to do crime. Bloodshed, the story says. John, however, assured him that he had found forgiveness for him from the Savior. He prayed, knelt down, and kissed that right hand as being cleansed through repentance. Oh my goodness. What a sweet, sweet story of the apostle, of a man of God, certainly misunderstood by his peers, by the worldly haters around him, misunderstood even by the bandits watching on if they were watching this scene. I think John is amazing, a mensch. <laughs> and then he led him back, the story continues, and did not leave him until through prayer, fasting, and instruction, more catechesis, it's always ongoing, he had restored him to the church. A great example of true repentance, it says, and regeneration, the trophy of a visible resurrection. And finally, Eusebius states, I cite this extract from Clement, both for its historical and edifying benefits. Its edifying benefits are greatly needed in our day and age, dear cross-defense listener. Look at the example the apostle sets for us, the lengths to which he is willing to go to save one who is considered dead by the rest of the church, to save this unrepentant sinner. His risk of bodily harm, vulnerability, declares just how worthless his own life is, how he sees it in pursuit of his neighbor's salvation in Christ. His safety doesn't matter. We live in an age of safetyism. That's, that's not right. That's not the accurate way to live as Christians. Our safety is secondary. We serve neighbor before self. We have both pastors and lay listeners on this show, and all of us can relate to the young man. We all, in sin, turn from the baptismal gift that's been given to us by God through the service of others. John said, Christ and I, right? We have become partners in the gospel. Philippians 1.1. Maybe you haven't physically abandoned the faith, but you know what it is to sin, even though you've been taught the truth of the word, you sin. But maybe you did. Maybe you have denied the life-giving gift given by Christ. These days, there are many stories of young people, high school and college-age people, who, who drifted away from the Christian faith. Far too many of these stories exist. They leave behind the tutelage of their parents, their pastor, other Christians, 
perhaps because their parents and because their pastor relaxed their oversight, as the Bishop of Smyrna did, or maybe just in plain old obstinate rebellion because of the encouragement of the world around them. And they, you, go off and not only follow other sinners into the depths of wickedness off the precipice, but by all accounts, you become the ringleader of the bandits. You gather the sinners around and you, you build this group of sin. Was this, is this you? Then you know the young man in this story. John's love for that man is also known. John's willingness to trade places with him, know that. Your parents, your pastor, your brother Christians, they will trade places with you if it means your salvation. They are willing to die in your place as Christ was willing to die for all of us. That, my friends, is the love your pastor has for you. Your Christian brother of any vocation has for you. It's the love of your neighbor in Christ. This is our love, isn't it? I've lived as the inept churchman who failed those who've been deposited into my care as a pastor. I've failed them. Every pastor has. Ministers, truly faithful ministers. We, we tear our clothing and beat our head and groan. Not that we've left another soul into the care of someone who is inept, but that, that we are the inept one caring for our brother's soul. Recognizing our sins against our Lord's flock. And we hear the words of St. John in our ears. We say them to and about ourselves, a fine guardian I left for our brother's soul. And like the young man, we can also see ourselves restored to the church through much prayer, fasting, and catechesis, instruction. Pastors, laity, all of us. Where John was willing to die for the young man, Jesus did die for the young man, and he died for me, and he died for you. He died to absolve you of your sins, dear saints. He died to wash away your sins, not with tears, but with his very blood poured out from the cross. He died to save you from your death and restore you to life, to cleanse your soul that you would be regenerated in the water of baptism, a true example of repentance. Jesus is the trophy of the visible resurrection in which we have been granted participation. You, dear saint, you will be resurrected from the grave to live forever with the church because of Christ Jesus. I hope you're encouraged by this story. We're out of time. We are out of time. Bless you as others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of Christ. Bless you. And may you always know there is no such thing as a post-Christian anything. You are loved. We'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.